today is the day that our nation set aside to celebrate the life of Martin Luther King. So I'm going to start with a short um, piece of writing from Rilke, which makes me think of Martin Luther King. Rilke says, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. So this evening, I'm hoping that with the eloquence of Martin Luther King's words, we'll be able to widen our circle of being, our circle of compassion, to include more and more. And as I'm uh, telling his story, and I'll be reading some of his um, little bits of his speeches tonight, and I know lots of us have heard a lot of his speeches, but remember that the language came from 35 and 40 years ago, and we've had, fortunately, a few changes in uh, a few phrasings. So you'll hear me, or you'll hear Martin Luther King say the word Negro, and we will think African-American or black. That's obvious. The other one that is obvious, but I just want to say, is that <coughs> at that time when he was speaking and writing, it was the common use was to say all white man, all black man, all, you know, mankind. In other words, the word man was predominant, and we all know that that means men and women. So it's a <laughs> sign that um, things have changed since these words were written. Other than that, the words are so timeless. Um, I mean, I really consider just sitting here and reading the speeches of Martin Luther King. They're so profound. But um, for those of you that don't know much of his story, he was born in the South and grew up in the 1930s. So he knew, he knew what racism was. He knew the damage it was taking on people. He knew the foulness of what it was to be living as an oppressed person. And he had the opportunity, he was brilliant obviously, to go to graduate school in the North. So he went um, up and was doing his PhD, his doctorate work <coughs> in the North, and he had a very different life. He had friends that were white and friends that were black. He was obviously well-liked. Um, he was invited to stay. He was offered a job to be, he, he was a minister, he was offered a job as a minister, and he and his young wife, Coretta, could have made that choice for a very, very different life than the one that they both had come out of in the South. And um, they made the choice to go back to the South. And when he made that choice, um, he did not go back to the South because he knew he was going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, become the man of the year of Time magazine. He didn't know he was going to lead the civil rights movement and, and help the people of the South regain the right to vote and the right for equal education and ending of legal segregation. You know, he didn't know that. He didn't go back to the South because he knew that he would not only inspire Americans, but inspire people all over the world. Martin Luther King is loved all over the world. We don't all know that. 
and has been the inspiration for human rights movements all over the world. It's, it's a, an amazing story when you really get into it. He, um, he went back, he made the choice to go back to what he knew it was to go back into the South because he knew about the suffering and he wanted to do what he could do. He thought he was going to be a minister at Dexter Church in Montgomery, which he did. He didn't know how much else he would do. Um, he was a devout Christian, of course, he was a Baptist minister, but his message of peace and justice and equality achieved through nonviolence and love pierced through to the heart of every religion. So as I said, people of every religion claimed him. You know, he's ours. And um, in the Buddhist tradition, we would say he had the heart of a bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva, remember, is someone who is completely committed to their own enlightenment in order to serve all beings. It's not enlightenment for enlightenment's sake. It's not enlightenment to get out of here. It's enlightenment <laughs> to be of benefit to all beings. That's the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva is willing to go into any situation, into any condition, no matter how hellish, in order to serve. And uh, the bodhisattva is vows to use whatever may arise in that hellish condition or that situation for their own awakening and for the awakening and the benefit of everyone. So for Martin Luther King, it included using over and over being sent to prison many times unfairly, many, many times unfairly. It included being uh, having his house bombed when his family and his little children were in it. It included being stabbed. That's just to name a few of the things that this bodhisattva used to open his heart for the benefit of all beings. And he, he used it. He wrote books in prison. He talked about using these experiences. And a bodhisattva understands the truth of interconnection uh, from the words of Martin Luther King, he says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single diamond of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So the bodhisattva practices to feel and see and live from this truth of the interrelated structure of reality. Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. When the Buddha was enlightened under the Bodhi tree, he realized a radical truth 
that distinguished him from other teachers of his time. And he called it dependent co-arising of phenomena or dependent origination. And what that means is that no matter how hard we look inside, none of us can find a solid, separate, continuous self. But rather what is found is that all life is connected in a web of mutuality, of, of ca causal, mutual causality, it's called in Buddhism. It means nothing exists of itself. It means everything exists in relationship. Nothing just exists as a separateness. Amazing. It means we're all in this together, bottom line. <laughs> like it or not, for better or for worse, here we are. And um, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, there's a beautiful image that is an image of this understanding of it, the interrelatedness of everything. It's called the jeweled net of Indra. And in the jeweled net of Indra, each, each being is a node in the net, and each being is a jewel, and each jewel is, ref is reflecting every other jewel in the whole net, and all the reflections are being reflected back. So everything is completely interconnected in this webbing of jeweling, touching each other. There's a, um, hopefully you know of our great local bodhisattva, Joanna Macy. Um, if you don't, I so recommend her to you all. She says, Awakening to our true self is the awakening to the entirety of, the, of Indra's net, the breaking out of the prison of the separate ego. The one who perceives this is the bodhisattva. I'm going to read that again. Awaiting, awakening to our s true self is the awakening to the entirety of Indra's net. It is the breaking out of the prison of the separate ego. The one who perceives this is the bodhisattva. And Albert Einstein said, Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison of self-concern or this sense of separateness by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. So the Bodhisattva trains, practices to open beyond this small sense of self and to begin to experience this interrelated, interconnectedness. The Bodhisattva trains in widening the circle of compassion, widening the circle of being. And the training consists of meditation practice and of moral conduct and of compassionate action. That's the, the training ground of the Bodhisattva. And our most famous, um, beloved bodhisattva is the Dalai Lama, the bodhisattva of compassion. Um, he says, 
that in order for humanity to ever live in peace, we have to develop empathy. Empathy is that ability to feel with each other. And he said we have to actually cultivate empathy for the conditions of people who are different as part of the Bodhisattva's path. So he said, practice empathy for people who are of different races or different circumstances, different religions, different living in different worlds. It's part of our path. And again, from Martin Luther King, where is the part about empathy, Martin Luther King? Right here. So many different quotes from him. What is needed today on the part of white America is a committed altruism that recognizes the truth of interconnection. True altruism is more than the capacity to pity. It is the capacity to empathize. Pity is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling sorry with someone. Empathy is fellow feeling for the person who in need, their pain, agony, and burdens. I doubt if the problems of our teeming ghettos will have a great chance to be solved until the white majority, through genuine empathy, comes to feel the ache and the anguish of the Negro's daily life. So um, powerful truth, and I know this particular group can feel and resonate with these words as true. And we probably also know that there are some people of color, especially some young people of color, who say, and I've heard them say, yeah, you know, Martin Luther King, yeah, too bad it didn't work. And my sense is that if Dr. King were alive today and he heard that statement, I have a feeling he wouldn't be defensive and make a list of all the phenomenal things that have happened you know, to the outer lives of people of color and their circumstances. My sense is that if he heard some young person say that, he would ha have empathy. He would meet that person and he'd say, please tell me about your life. Tell me about your day-to-day -day life. I know that um, I've had the sad honor, as I know a number of you have, to sit and to hear the stories of young people of color, um, youth at risk, and um, it's, it's a hard thing to hear this one young black man that I'm thinking of. Um, he talked about growing up in a neighborhood so filled with dealing and weapons and danger that he joined a gang to have a sense of protection and a sense of power. And he talked about his father being in prison, this kid almost the kid's whole life, and his mom trying to hold a family together on a minimum wage job as an aide at a convalescent home. And this um, young, fiery, 
young man filled with anger and truth was already aware that he was caught in the in the cycle of poverty and he was mad about it and we were mostly a white um, professional group of therapists um, that he was talking to there was a group of these youth at risk talking to this group of white therapists and he said with fire he said look around and see you know who is cleaning the toilet in your office who is picking up the garbage and pardon me he said who is wiping the butt of your parents at the convalescent home who is doing the hardest and dirtiest work for the lowest wages in this country so this kid it was so bright so full of life was headed straight to becoming one of the statistics that we've all heard over and over about um, youth of color especially young black men the all the you know the sti statistics about how young black men are more likely to be in prison more likely to get heavier jail sentences more likely to get the death penalty more likely to be killed in violent crime than than white men and this kid was right in that uh, situation He, um, he had already had too many friends die and too many friends go to prison. And he told us as he sat there and he started opening up to us, um, he told us about a time when he was 12 and he went to the mall with his friends the way 12-year-olds do. And the security cops started following him and his friends. And remember what it was like to be 12 or your kids that are 12? They were so ashamed and embarrassed because they weren't doing anything wrong. But he talked about the shame of being singled out. And he talked about being nine when at school he was chased by a group of white kids. This was in the Bay Area, by the way. This was recent in the Bay Area. Um, chased by a group of white boys, beaten up and pushed downstairs and getting injured and having the school not follow up on anything. And he talked about what that was like. This was a kid who at 16 already felt completely trampled underneath the feet of the richest country in the world. And he was mad about it, really mad. And he had no view of a life, a future with any kind of dignity. He was um, really in this cycle of violence. So from his point of view, Martin Luther King's amazing, magnificent life didn't make a big difference. That's what he was talking about when he said, too bad it didn't work. Um, in the words of Martin Luther King written 40 years ago, he said, being a Negro in America is not a comfortable existence. It means being part of the company of the bruised, the battered, the scarred, and defeated. It means the pain of watching your children grow up with clouds of inferiority in their mental skies. It means being harried by day and haunted by night by a nagging sense of nobodiness and constantly fighting to be saved 
from the prison of bitterness. Mm. These, um, for me, these these words uh, go in deep. And and even though we all know, we sit here in 2002, and we know that so much has changed since Martin Luther King talked like that. It's so sad, but important for us to remember that for that kid and a whole lot of them, others, that's the description of their life. It's still happening. And somehow we sometimes think, oh, well, that was covered. The Civil Rights Act was passed, and now we're on to you know, something else. But it isn't. For a lot of people of color, it's still the front line issue. And I know this is hard for us to hear. It's hard to hear about this kid who in the San Francisco Bay Area experiences so much racism. His life is, could be ruined. I don't know how he made it or not, but it's hard to know that. So I would like, just for a second, don't change your position. Just close your eyes for a second. I just want us, for a moment, to check into our body and our heart and to see what happens inside when you hear this story of this kid. And maybe sadness or anger or compassion or numbness. You may feel defensive, like, I've heard this before, okay, come on. Just notice whatever happens when you hear about this. And then just ask, we ask ourselves, the Bodhisattva asks this question over and over. What would it mean to widen my circle of compassion to include this? to not hold it out. You can open your eyes. I think it's good for us to check in and find out about the effect or the reactions we have to this stuff, this truth about our world. Joanna Macy says, by allowing ourselves to feel the pain of the world, we open ourselves up to the web of life and we realize we're not alone. So several years ago, maybe 12 or so, I allowed myself to feel the pain and the upset about racism. And that feeling led me to a series of groups and workshops and trainings and events, um, multicultural events, where I would be in groups of um, people of different ethnic backgrounds, different gender preference, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions, etc., sitting together telling the truth about our experience. And I can't begin to tell you how brutal and how heartbreaking and how beautiful and how profound and sacred those circles have been and how much impact they've had on my life. It's been, over the years, hard to look into my own conditioning, to see the places I have racism, 
And it's been heartbreaking to listen again and again to stories of people of color, to hear of unthinkable <coughs> suffering and injustice, and of lives really, really being stolen by racism. So um, I'll tell you one of example of me recognizing a piece of my own conditioning. Um, this is never a comfortable thing, you know, to sit here and say, yes, this is my racism. But I hope it will serve somebody. Um, <coughs> it's hard because I don't want to see it. I don't want to know that's in me. I sincerely and deeply uh, want all beings to be free, and I want justice and equality for all. And the last thing I want to know is that inside me is something that would actually contribute to racism. So the defenses against seeing it are hard, but in these groups, those defenses <laughs> are taken down, and um, there's stuff to see. So I grew up in <coughs> San Diego, which we know is right next to Tijuana. And the only group of people that I ever experienced difficult experiences with was a very specific group. It was men from Mexico, um, men who came across the border to work in San Diego. And they, they might stay overnight or they might live there for a little while, but they usually lived in Tijuana. And I want to say right now, I was never, ever harmed by anyone physically. I was frightened but no one ever harmed me. But I was frightened. And then I moved away from San Diego, and I, f I forgot that, and, you know, I grew up. And years after that, I was in one of these groups, and in inquiring into my own, you know, conditioning. And I was so, um, I was literally nauseated. It was sickening to me the day I saw this piece of racism in myself. But there it was, and goody, goody little me, you know, a little nice liberal Deborah. There was judgment and assumptions about men from Mexico based on these experiences that had been sitting in there hidden from my awareness for years. And once I saw it, once I could admit it, then I could work on it. Then there's something I knew, oh, okay, this is a non-truth I need to deal with. Then I could be aware when I saw a Chicano man and I could try to see past my veil and see the human being in there. And I went out of my way to actually make connections and talk to and make relationships with some Chicano men and um, as we all know, if one does that, assumptions turn into all kind of appreciation. I mean, it, it works. Contact works. So that's something I've been working on and um, something that was, like I said, hard to see. So at one of these groups that I was a part of, there was this man, a black man, um, a powerful, articulate black man. Is of man, I, I don't know how to tell you, but this man has soul force or soul, uh, a, a kind of spiritual depth that was very unusual and noticed by a lot of people. And he, when he talked, it was like everything stopped. He, he, whenever he talked, it, it just went so deep into everyone. 
and he um, told us about what it was like to be a child growing up in the South, a little child, I think he was four or five, when his mother died because the ambulance wouldn't come into his neighborhood and she wouldn't have died otherwise. And he grew up with that. And he grew up being also physically abused. And he became a heroin addict. And he did years in prison and out of prison and back in prison and out of prison. And finally, he realized that his survival would depend on his recovery. And he figured out the recovery was going to have to happen with other black men who had some comprehension of where the brokenness in him came from. So he began working hard, hard work to pull out of where he had come from. And he, with just so much work in these recovery circles with black men, he reclaimed his life. And now for many, many years, um, he lives like a bodhisattva. His life is all about helping other men of color who have come to the end of the dead end and um, helping them reclaim their lives. So I really had just enormous respect for this man and love. And one day, about a year and a half into this group that we were in together, he said to me, um, Deborah, I know you have good intentions, but I can't trust you until I know that you will be an ally for the people of color. And he said, what that means to me is that you will go in to your white, liberal, nice, spiritual community, and you will ask them to look at their own stuff, to do their work on racism. He said, that's what being an ally would be. And he said, ask them to look into the hidden pockets of prejudice. Ask them to see the truth about their privilege. That's being an ally. So I made that commitment about, it was about 10 years ago, I guess. And <laughs> I am so grateful to him for calling forth that commitment in me because it's led me on a road that I don't know, who knows how things work, but it's led me on a road that has been, um, you know, sometimes beautiful road, sometimes bumpy road, sometimes got me in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> it's not a particularly popular thing to, to do is to ask people to look at this stuff, but I'm, I'm grateful that I've been on this road. Um, this commitment has has shaped my choices that I've made over the years about where I would put my time and my money and my energy if I wanted to work on something. And, um, and it's been hard, this particular commitment. I always wonder, am I doing it enough <coughs> or am I doing it right and, you know, do I have to go get in trouble again or whatever. But for all that I've been through on this journey, um, this particular commitment to doing diversity work has given me so much more than it's taken. It's, it gave me back a part of myself I didn't even know I had lost. 
and it's given me experiences of interconnection where there have been in the past walls of separation. So I've been in many circles with people of color over the years, and I've heard this same statement again and again. We don't want your guilt. We don't want your pity. We want you to do your own work and look at your own racism. And please look into the subtle little ways that may be unconscious where you somehow subtly participate in a system that oppresses people of color. Over and over, this is the one thing that's been asked. This um, work, what I could call at this point diversity work, has um, been a really important part of my spiritual practice, Dharma practice, diversity work as Dharma practice. Um, when we started bombing Afghanistan, I actually spoke here the next night, I remember a lot of you were here. Um, I cried for hours the day they started bombing Afghanistan. My heart broke at just the horror of war, and I felt that for everybody involved on both sides. I didn't want anyone to have to go through this. And then the weeks of the bombing went on and on and on. And I was doing, um, for those of you that are not familiar, this is Bear Rock, many, many of us do regular practice where we um, connect with loving kindness and compassion, and we extend it to other beings. So I had been doing that regularly through this bombing for everyone involved, people on both sides. And as um, the weeks passed and we had Americans on the ground in combat and someone had been killed, one day um, I was doing my practice in the meditation and I noticed, I just noticed that my compassion was so much stronger. It was flowing toward the Americans and their terrified families. And it wasn't that I was sitting wishing harm to the Taliban. It was that I couldn't feel them. They, they, were, they had become other. And I was so disturbed because I hadn't felt this several weeks earlier. I was disturbed and frightened. And I remember talking to my husband saying, my God, the propaganda has worked. And so that day I stopped watching television news. I knew I had to do that until I could find my heart again, the heart that I was used to uh, finding. And I, the route back to compassion that included everybody, was through the mothers and the grandmothers, the Afghanistan mothers and grandmothers, because through them I could just feel my mother and my grandmother during World War II when my father was on the front line in Germany, and they were just praying every day for him to live through that day, just praying for him to come home. And although I, I didn't hear many stories about that, nobody talked much, I absolutely picked it up. I, f I can feel it. 
I know what it felt like for them. And, and knowing what it felt like for my grandmother and mother, I know what it felt like for those mothers in Afghanistan. It's exactly the same horrible feeling. And so through my grief with the mothers, I, I reconnected with the heart that cares for all beings, um, regardless of what side they're on. And that, that process, I'm sure, happened. The awareness of that subtle, it wasn't like I was hating these people and wanting them to die. It was a subtle loss of care. That happened because of my ongoing involvement in these diversity circles, because it keeps me aware of how this subtle otherness can happen. And it keeps me practicing to find my heart. So I would like to invite you, please, to close your eyes. And I'm going to lead a little exploration um, give you an opportunity to feel into, gently feel in, to ways that you may have conditioning that may somehow create people, some people, as others. So closing your eyes and know that this is a possible exploration. You can change words or images if it helps you to connect to the inquiry. And we begin knowing this is nothing to do with guilt. This We do this exploration for the benefit of all beings. So think of a time perhaps when you saw someone who was different in your neighborhood or your community and you wondered why they were there. Or maybe a time that you felt suspicious of someone's intention or behavior, a salesperson or a boss or an employee. Maybe you wondered if they were being somehow dishonest because based on difference. Or maybe you could think of a time that you assumed that a person of color was in some way less motivated or intelligent or less important or less informed or less educated than yourself. Just a time you had an assumption.
And if there are any of these thoughts or memories that <coughs> seem to be the strongest or that you connect with the most, just be with that for a minute without judging yourself. Just allow it. Notice when, when this happened, did it affect your behavior in any way? Did you maybe tighten or look away <coughs> or lock your door or count your change or act way too nice? As we're opening to this, see, can you do this exploration without rejecting yourself? Can you allow yourself to look at this from the heart of compassion and if it's there, to be able to say, yes, I too have this unwanted conditioning. And with kindness, allow yourself to know or to sense where you learned this. Relax your belly. As you see this, <coughs> realize that there's no need to defend yourself from seeing this. Because as you see it, you realize that every person, every human being, picks up prejudice along the way and carries it <coughs> until they intentionally dismantle it with awareness and with love. It's in the air we breathe. It's everywhere. So compassion to human conditioning, to our own conditioning, compassion to our guilt and our numbness and our defensiveness. Forgiveness to ourself for suffering that we may have caused intentionally or unintentionally. And just as we 
have fears and conditioning that can cause separation, we can see that, of course, others also have this. Everyone has it. So we extend compassion and forgiveness to others. And you may want to end this exploration by making an inner intention or commitment. You could possibly say to yourself, if it feels true, I commit to see and transform the seeds of prejudice that are within me. May my heart open to include all beings. And you can open your eyes. Take a breath. I really thank you for your willingness to put your toe into this very deep, big, giant topic. It's a deep well. And what I can tell you is that to the degree that you explore this hidden and uncomfortable material, there is in the deep well a fountain of healing, a fountain of healing that the world needs. So I thank you for doing that. It's um, important for so many reasons, and one of them is that these subtle veils that happen in us that create a sense of other are very dangerous. Where there's other, where there's us and them, we humans become capable of harming them. Every war was fought against them. So this work really is important work to look into ourself and see how it's within us. It's not just out there. So as we practice the bodhisattva path of widening our circle of being and our circle of compassion, we our sense of ourself opens to include more and more of the world. And we begin to act from a place of, of care and tenderness. And I know many of us here have said from this place of openness and care, um, there's just too much. There's so many urgent issues. There's homelessness and global warming, and there's the whales, and the, you know, there's an infinite list of problems, and I'm overwhelmed, and it's too much, and I don't know what to do, and even if I did something, I don't know if it would do any good. 
I mean, that's a very common and understandable feeling given the, the conditions that we're living in. And I hope it will help for me to say what you already know, but to just remember that no one person has to do it all. We do one tiny little bit. We do our little bit. Martin Luther King didn't even try to save the whales. You know, it didn't, <laughs> wasn't on his agenda. He did his thing. I um, asked a friend who you may know as a teacher, Gwen Gordon, who is a teacher of deep ecology, I said, how, what, what would you recommend to help people move from the place of overwhelm and despair into action? And, and how do you re recommend people knowing what to do? I mean, the what to do is so vast. And she said a beautiful thing, and I want to quote her. She said, uh, tell them to give, give yourself permission to love something. And pay attention to the next time your heart is stirred to act on behalf of another being. That is so beautiful. Just find one little place, one little creek, or one little trail, it doesn't matter, that you can love. That's the path. I myself cared about something passionately and felt completely powerless and overwhelmed in the face of it, but I went to one meeting. I, I went to one meeting. I had no idea of the years of involvement in <laughs> what I would get, the number of meetings I would get myself involved in. Um, but it started by caring about something and going to one meeting. One of the things that people who are involved in compassionate action um, always say, and I want to be sure to remind you, if you should be drawn into outer action, there's inner action, which is so needed, and there's outer action. And if you're called to outer action, it's so important to join with others who are involved because instead of feeling alone and overwhelmed, you feel this web of interconnection healing itself in the group you're with. It's an important and beautiful part of, of what's possible. So fortunately, we don't have to try to be Martin Luther King. It's good. It would be a tough act to follow. Our work um, is to find the wisdom and compassion of our own heart that's already here, and to allow our actions to be guided by that. The work of the Bodhisattva is to find this truth that's already here and to live from there. The Bodhisattva not only practices coming, living from interconnection and love, but the Bodhisattva pays a lot of attention to motivation. So we, part of the practice is to practice acting out of love instead of hate. That doesn't mean you have to wait until you're enlightened to take action. It's a practice. Uh, something to notice, motivation. And, you know, we don't have to be saints to be involved in compassionate action. And by the way, 
in case you didn't already know this, if you should find out, Martin Luther King was not a saint. Don't be disappointed. He's a great man, but he wasn't a saint. One of the um, many extraordinary accomplishments of this human being, who was not a saint, um, was that he was able to inspire many, many people over a period of many years to remain nonviolent in the face of violence. And think about it. Think about it if it's you and your children. These marches occurred with little children involved, too. Um, churches were bombed, cars were bombed, houses were bombed, people were beaten, people were killed, and children were killed. Lots of people bled and died through this. And people kept practicing, under the incredible guidance of Martin Luther King, meeting this hate with love. And it's a question for me. If it was me, could I have done that? Could I have remained nonviolent under those conditions? Could you? It's an amazing story. from Martin Luther King, and many of you will, will recognize this. It sounds almost identical to once some, a teaching that the Buddha once gave. Martin Luther King says, Hatred and bit bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. And just to make sure you understand what he's talking about, love, I want to add this from a different speech. He says, nonviolence not only calls upon its adherence to avoid external physical violence, but it calls upon them to avoid internal violence of spirit. It calls on them to engage in something called love. I know it's difficult sometimes. He's in a sermon now speaking to people who are going to march. I know it's difficult sometimes. When I say love at this point, I'm not talking about an affectionate emotion. It's nonsense to urge oppressed people to love their opponents in an affectionate sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about a sort of understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all. So, Martin Luther King was like a brilliant, blazing shooting star. He came and he lit up the sky, and then all too soon he was gone from us, at least in his form, gone. He was only 26 years old when Rosa Parks, the seamstress, refused to go to the back of the bus. And his community, Martin Luther King's community unanimously voted this young 26-year-old minister 
to be the one who would lead them in their boycott of the Montgomery bus system. And that was the first victory. That was the historic beginning. And that first victory for civil rights was followed by so many incredible victories through nonviolence, um, victories that happened at lunch counters and at schools and on buses and on bloody streets. And there were also extraordinary and historic victories that happened on the floor of the United States Congress and the United States Supreme Court. Because of Martin Luther King's work, the human rights vision of the United States Constitution was radically expanded because of this being affecting the lives of millions of people. He was also, among so many other things, he was a, one of the main leaders and vocal uh, speakers against the war in Vietnam. He was speaking out and telling the truth about nuclear disarmament. And at the age of 39, he was only 39 when he died, um, he was taking on poverty. That was his next thing he was going to fight. And he went to Memphis to lead uh, poor workers for higher w to march nonviolently for higher wages. Um, none of this that I'm talking about was easy. This was hard, what he did. The Dalai Lama said, um, my experience has given me deep understanding of the pressures and the sorrows that Martin Luther King bore in maintaining his adherence to nonviolence. And there were many sorrows. Martin Luther King, for years, had his, himself and his family with his four young children, uh, their lives were threatened all the time. And he kept going. He didn't stop. He had dear friends die, and he kept going, and he didn't stop. So I'm going to read to you the last paragraph of the last speech of Martin Luther King. And you've heard this. This is very famous. But it's just so powerful to know that this, he said this, and the next day he was shot and killed. He says, I don't, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And God has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I have looked over, and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight, and I'm not worried about anything, and I'm not fearing anyone. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Pretty powerful last speech. This man, this 
giant gave us all, not just the blacks of the South, he gave us all so much. And I am so grateful that he was given that vision before he died. I hope it helped him to die with peace. It's a challenge to speak of such an enormous soul uh, and all that his life asks of us to look at in one hour. There's so much to cover, so many incredible speeches and issues. And I'm hoping that as we leave here, what we leave with is, is a knowing that we are all part of the vision that he saw from the mountaintop. We're all part of that. The Bodhisattva understands that no one gets to the promised land until everybody gets to the promised land. So we're all, we're all part of this vision together. So I would like just to end with a prayer. Gratitude, great gratitude for the life and the sacrifice of Martin Luther King, for the message and the teaching and the gifts of Martin Luther King. May we have the courage to follow these teachings. May we always practice to widen our circle of compassion to include more and more beings. And may we find and live from the truth of interconnectedness. May all beings everywhere be free. If you were stirred or moved by this um, topic tonight, there's a book I would recommend to follow up called Uprooting Racism by Paul Kivel, K-I-V-E-L. Also, you'll see out there are papers like this out in the uh, when you leave that have the diversity as practice calendar for the year of 2002 here at Spirit Rock. And I'm curious, I'm available, but only if there's a need or an interest. Um, there's a wonderful, extraordinary documentary called The Color of Fear, which is a teaching a group of men of color met with a group of white men, and they captured on film the uncovering of unconscious racism. <laughs>
So thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.